Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Good morning, church. Tell you what, those children are a blessing, amen? It's really amazing to see all the kids up on stage and... I know all of our parents and grandparents, it was uh, so cool for you to observe your children worshiping. And uh, it's interesting watching Joe, he kind of reverted to his choir. You notice he was leading the kids and it's natural. So um, we're excited uh, that you guys are able to join us. We want to welcome everyone online. Uh, before we uh, open up the service uh, and the message, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the rejoicing that we have in this building that out of the mouths of young people, Lord. Your word says, nursing infants and babies, we have perfected praise. So, Lord, thank you that we just got a glimpse of that today. So, Lord, as we talk about your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Bless all those who are here, those who are traveling. we got so many at the beach and just traveling different places that you would give them safety. And as they're joining us online, that you would bless them. Lord, as we look into your word, speak to our hearts. And we ask and pray your blessing will be upon this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Acts 23, so if you'll go and turn there. And we have about a whole chapter to cover. Is that okay if we read a chapter in the Bible? You guys cool with that? (laughs) You're like, amen. So um, first service didn't know if we were going to make it through the whole chapter, but we did. So you guys, uh, it's going to be fine. So as you turn there, I've got a few pictures. See if this has ever happened to any of you. First one is, uh, if you can't see, the ink cartridges just went all over the place. Printers, yeah, that's a bad day in the office. All right, second picture, a lady lost her cell phone. And uh, doesn't look like she's going to get it anytime soon. Next picture, you may not be able to see it, but in your right corner it says wet paint and a lady just sat down on the bench. At least she's wearing a red shirt, right? So maybe it compliments her shirt. All right, next picture. They forgot to remove their drainage plug in the boat, and um, or at least they forgot to install it. So look what happened. Sorry. All right. You're making a cup of coffee in the morning, and you forgot to turn your coffee the right way, the coffee cup. Sometimes that happens. This actually happened. Um, I don't think it's in this area, but a snake turned on the AC and came out of the AC ventilation system. How many of you are going to check your cars when you you get in there today? (laughs) All right. And last but not least, make a wish. Your hair caught on fire. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever caught your hair on fire before? I'm just curious. I've done it somewhat singed, not nearly. I was a gas grill incident. I I was letting the gas run. And uh, I have so many stories, don't I? But my hair, I think at the time I had hairspray. It, It singed and... So we had to cut off the dead end. So today's message is what to do when everything's going wrong. And uh, some of you today find yourself in a place where you thought life is going to go better than it has gone. And life has been from tough to tougher, from bad to worse. And some of you aren't in that place. You're in a good place and we rejoice with that with you in that. But there will be a time 
Jesus said, in this world, you not shall, maybe, might, but you will have problems. So this message is going to prepare you. And if you're just joining us, we are in a new series called Let's Change the World. And we're tracking Paul from Jerusalem all the way to to Rome. And uh, so we're going to read a whole chapter. It's going to be Paul's court proceedings. And uh, for all of those who are in legal professions, you guys will enjoy this. For the rest of you, I'll do my best to get you in the courtroom scene because if you're not a judge or a lawyer, this may be a little different for you. But Paul's going to be on trial and he's on trial because he's being falsely accused by religious leaders who want him dead. So we pick up in chapter 23, verse 23. And as I said, we're going to read about a chapter and we're going to talk about what happened to Paul. How did Paul respond? And then application at the end. So don't check out. There's going to be application to you. How should you respond? So let's start in verse 23 of chapter 23. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason why they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had done nothing charged against him deserving of chains or death. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against them. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antri Petrus. And the next day he left the horsemen to go with them and returned to the barracks. Verse 33. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So before we go to chapter 24, just kind of fill you guys in on what's happening. Basically, they're trying to come up with legal charges against Paul. And they haven't got anything that would stick. If you guys remember weeks past, he was before the Sanhedrin. And when he realized he wasn't going to get a fair trial, he kind of split the groups against each other. He said, I believe in the resurrection. That's why I'm on trial. And the Sadducees were upset. And the Pharisees, well, maybe Paul's not a bad guy because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So they didn't come up with any legal charges against Paul. So now they're, they're passing the buck down the road. Because Claudius Lysias said, I, I don't see any crime in him. He shouldn't be in chains. He's not deserving of death. So instead of confronting the Jewish leaders, he does what a lot of people do. He passes the buck down the road and he wants Paul to be someone else's problem. So we pick up in chapter 24. And in chapter 24, you're going to see the courtroom scene. And in a courtroom, you generally have a judge, you have a defense team, you have a prosecuting team. But in Paul's case, he has no one to defend Paul. He's by himself and the defense, the prosecuting side, they're, they're going to lawyer up. They have so many well-spoken people. They have members of the Sanhedrin. They have this famous orator that's going to be there. So pick up in verse one. 
Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. That'd be a cool kid's name, right? Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. So in verse two, he's kind of buttering up to the guy, you know, he's like, hey, you're the greatest. I'm glad I get to present my case to you. Verse three, we accept it always and in all places, the most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander... Lias came by with great violence and took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourselves, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And all the Jews ascended, maintaining that these things were so. So before we go to Paul's defense, you have Tertullus basically presenting a case. He's buttering up to Felix. And uh, he's stating three charges against Paul, which we'll go into detail what the three charges were. And so here you have Paul and he's all alone. But what we're going to discover in today's message is when you have God, you're never alone. And when you live for an audience of one, you don't have to fear anyone. So pick up in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded for him to speak, answered, inasmuch as I know that I have that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So if we read the next verse, does anybody know what the name Felix means? Some of you are thinking cat, but it has to do with joyful, right? Joyful. Uh, what is it in Spanish? Felice? There you go. So you see Paul's doing a play on words. He's like, I joyfully get to talk to you whose name is Joyful. Interesting, huh? Paul's really good with words. Verse 11, because you may ascertain that it was no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So in verse 11, Paul is saying, listen, 12 days, what he's accusing me of, do you think I really could start a riot in this short of time? I've only been 12 days since Jerusalem. Verse 12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Now, they can... Nor can they prove any of the things which they now accuse me. So keep in mind, you're in a court of law and he's like, listen, they're making three accusations against me. They can prove none of these things. It's just hearsay. Verse 14. But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. You may want to underline that phrase. It's interesting. In verse 14, Paul says, I believe the whole Bible, everything in the Old Testament, all the law, and all the prophets. I believe every word. Verse 15, I have hope in God that which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. 
in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with the tumult. They ought to have been here before you if they object, if anything they have against me. So in verse 19, he's saying, listen, you know, the Old Testament, you have to have two or three witnesses. If if they're accusing me, where are the witnesses? So he's saying there's no witnesses. Verse 20, or else let those who say here themselves say if they found me doing any wrong while I stood before the council, unless it was for one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged by you this day. May God bless his word. So what I want to do for those of us who are non-illegal, right? We got a few lawyers and a, a, a amazing judge in our midst. But the rest of us who are non-legal, we're reading this, we're like, okay, charges against Paul. Like, what What does this have to do? So what I want to do is talk about what actually happened to Paul. How did Paul respond? And then we're going to draw the application to you. What happens if you're under trial? What happens if you're falsely accused? How should you respond? So the first observation is Paul was taken under the cover of night to Caesarea to stand trial before Governor Felix. So we have Claudius Lysias, and Claudius Lysias took the threats seriously. If you guys remember last week, there were how many people had a death threat against Paul? Does anybody remember? Over 40 men had a pact, and they basically said anathema. God do so to me if I don't kill Paul myself. So basically they had agreed neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. So Commander Lysias basically said this is a serious threat. So he ordered, I want you guys to get, we're going to count how many, so put on your math hats, 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen. How many armed troops is that? 470. So this is up to half of his armed troops. When you have 1,000 soldiers, 470 is like half of them. So it begs the question, Paul, which by the name, by the way, his name Paul means little one. Did you guys know that? Little one. And according to church history, these are eyewitness accounts, Paul was not someone you'd be afraid of. He was a little guy. He was bull-legged, maybe because he had been beaten so many times. He walked kind of strange. He was bald. He had a unibrow, true story, unibrow, and he wasn't intimidating to anybody. So why in the world would you need 470 men to guard Paul? Well, the answer is God's providence. Paul had a mission to accomplish. And what you can encourage you from the text as we read these scriptures is that when God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. So in life, things will happen to you and things will happen against you. But you look at Paul. I mean, why in the world would 470 armed troops protect him? Was it necessary? Well, God was protecting Paul because God had told Paul, Jesus had appeared to Paul and said, you've been faithful to bear witness to me in Jerusalem, and you've got to go all the way to where? To Rome. So Paul knows he's not going to die in Caesarea. He already knows. Wouldn't that be cool to know you're not going to die somewhere? Wouldn't that give you a little boldness? So to apply that to us, I want to bring up Ephesians 3.20, a verse we talk about a lot. And Paul wrote this. He says, now to him is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So you could have hoped for a few troops... 470 is like way more than you can imagine, right? So in your life, you may think bad things are happening against you, and they will. But listen, God is your judge. God is your warrior. He's your protector. And we often ask the question, what's the worst case scenario? What if I die? 
what if you die? What happens to the Christian who dies? You get promoted. So you're a winner either way, whether you live or whether you go on to be with the Lord. You're a winner either way. And Paul knew that in Romans eight. Paul said these words later. And it's interesting, the context, he had so many people against him. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with the son also freely give us all things? So when it seems like the whole world is against you, you can stand confident in this. Jesus is not only for you, but he's with you. And if Jesus is with you, who can be against you? Amen. Let the church get some courage. Second observation from Paul's life. Number two, Paul was innocent and he had done nothing deserving of criminal punishment. So in verses 25 through 30, we see Paul's innocence. Commander, the commander wrote this letter and basically sent it to Felix and said, listen, Paul has done nothing deserving of chains or death. He's innocent. And isn't it fascinating how some people that are accused of being innocent or accused of being guilty are actually innocent. And some people you think are innocent are actually guilty. Right. So how many of you have ever read the daily bread? It's a little daily devotional. Some of you have read that. We have some of those in the back of you if you want some of those daily devotional. But there was a true story about a guy named John. John was on his way home from work one day. And all of a sudden he sees this hitchhiker and against his better judgment, he decides, you know what? It's getting late. This guy has nowhere to go. I'm going to pick up this hitchhiker. I mean, you think it's a bad idea so far. So he picks up the hitchhiker and you ever, have you ever been around someone and you get kind of that creeper feel like this guy's kind of creeper. What, what am I doing? He's sitting next to me. I mean, he just had this creeper. He's trying to do a good deed, but kind of felt this creeper sense. And between him and the hitchhiker was his jacket. And as he was making turns, he just began to get this feeling of what if while I'm taking a left turn, the guy reaches and steals my wallet out of my jacket. So he reaches over for his jacket, trying not to set off the hitchhiker, and he feels for the pocket where his wallet is and his wallet is missing. So John just gets irate and he's like, he gets so upset. He's like, how dare this guy pick him up, do him a favor, giving him a ride. And he steals my wallet. So out of nowhere, John just gets in the fight or flight mode. He slams on the brakes. The car comes to a halting stop and he says, get out of here. And the hitchhiker's like, what did I do? You know, he's kind of shaking. He says, give me the wallet. Give me the wallet right now. And the hitchhiker's like doesn't know what to do. And he hands him a billfold. John sticks it in his pocket, races back to his wife, and he starts to tell the story about this hitchhiker. And his wife says, well, before you carry on, something I need to tell you before I forget. John, you left your wallet at home today. So you can imagine John when he pulled out and he saw the hitchhiker's wallet in his, in his pocket, right? So it's like he thought the hitchhiker was guilty, but he was the one that was guilty. The hitchhiker was innocent. So you hear Paul's case. People think that he's guilty, except the commander. Commander Claudius Lysias realizes that Paul's an innocent man. So that's that's why we got to be careful to judge people, because sometimes who we think is innocent is sometimes guilty. And who we think is guilty is sometimes innocent. So Claudius Lysias writes this letter, highlights that Paul is innocent. Uh, he exaggerates the truth about himself some, somewhat. He says, I rescued Paul when I found out he was a Roman citizen. 
The truth is, he actually bound Paul, was getting ready to beat him, and when he found out he was a citizen, he's like, oh, we, we can't beat a Roman citizen. So he, he stretched the truth. All right, so now we get about Felix. He's sending Paul to Felix. What do we know about Felix? Well, Felix was one of three, three Roman procurators in the New Testament. So you guys have heard of Pontius Pilate. He was one. The other one was Portius Festus, who was another procurator. So only three were mentioned. Uh, Felix, this is fascinating for a history buff. He was the only person in Roman history that went from being slave to being a ruler. So get this, he was actually a slave. You're like, well, how did he become a ruler if he was a slave? Well, his brother Marcus was friends to Claudius Caesar. And because he was able to be friends with the, the emperor, he's like, you know, I, I want you to do my f- favor for my brother. He's a slave. If you could help get him out of this, this would be great. So he got promoted from slave to being a ruler. So one of the historians, it's on your listening guide, Tactitus, a Roman historian, basically said this. He exercised royal power with the mind of a slave. So think about that. He, he had this authority, but he still had the mind of a slave. So when Paul went before this trial, it, he felt like it was a setup. And for some people, they think it would be a setback. But for Paul, it was a setup to share Christ. It was an opportunity for him to share the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. So here's a question I want to ask you. And online, you can put it in the comment section. Do you think Paul really cared what people thought about him, ultimately? Maybe a little, right? He's human. But everywhere Paul goes, he has people that stand against him. Now, something we talked about several months ago, I want to bring back just an application. How many of you remember the rule of the 25? Anybody ever remember that? All right. So here, I'm going to throw this up here. This may set some of you free. Some of you that have a little too much confidence, this may deflate you a little bit. But this is the averages, okay? This is average. You may be a little higher on the scale than some, but on average, 25% of people that meet you will like you and will always like you. 25% on average will not like you from the first time they meet you. Just not good impression. But over time, they could be convinced to like you. 25% like you, but over time, once they get to know you, they don't like you. So why are you so worried about what people think if only 25% are going to like you no matter what, right? So here's, here's the principle we can draw from Paul. How is he so bold even when so many people don't like him? I mean, his would be lower than 25% probably, except for the Christians, of course. So how is he so bold? Paul lived for an audience of one. And whenever you live for an audience of one, you learn not to fear anyone. I say that again. When you live for an audience of one, you don't fear anyone. Paul's only goal was to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So whether it's Claudius Lysias, whether it's Felix, Paul was there to represent Christ, whether people liked him or not. And some of us said, ouch, and amen. And if you study history, history bears witness to them. If you look at some of the greatest minds through history, uh, many of them were not liked in their time. So Beethoven, how many of you have ever heard his music or been fascinated by his life? Did you know that during his lifetime, many people did not like him? Many people did not like his visionary music. But after he died, all of a sudden he celebrated, right? Now, there were people in his lifetime that enjoyed his music, but it was after he was 
dead and gone, we were like, wow, he's a genius. All right, Abraham Lincoln, how many of you think he's one of the greatest American presidents? All right, but did you know that during his presidency, not everyone thought so? In fact, whenever he got elected, this is from the Illinois newspaper Salem Advocate, they were impressed with him. They said, Lincoln is no more capable of becoming a statesman, nay, than even a moderate, than a brain donkey can become a noble lion. I, I changed the language to make it PG for church. And did you know that the popular vote for Lincoln, he only got 40% of the popular vote to become president. We're like, how did he become president? By the electrical college, right? So Lincoln only got 40% of the votes. And now we consider him one of the greatest presidents. All right. What about Jonas Salk? He invented a cure vaccine for what? Polio. And during the 1940s and 50s, over 35,000 people were crippled with polio every year in the U.S. alone. But after he did this vaccination, people applauded him. But his peers in the scientific community, I want you to get this, they never let him join the prestigious National Academy of Sciences. So the guy that invents the polio vaccine can't even join this science club. Can you think about that? He never won a Nobel Peace Prize in his time. And this is the guy that helped so many lives. All right. How many of you have been following Tesla lately? Some of you probably have Tesla stocks. Do you know who that was named after? Yep. It was named after Nikola, Nikola Tesla. He, he died in 1943. Um, this guy invented amazing inventions, including electromagnetism, AC current. He had a lot of patents. But during his lifetime, he often wasn't celebrated as he should be. He often was ignored, given less credit than he deserved. And when he died, he died alone in a hotel room. Did he know that 70 years later, some guy by the name of Elon Musk would name a company after him and be one of the richest guys in the world? So here's the point. Focus less on being famous and focus more on being faithful. Learn from the Apostle Paul. His only goal was to please an audience of one, not to try to please the crowd. And in Matthew 25, 23, this is the verse we refer back to. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Amen. All right. Observation number three from Paul's life. Paul was protected by God for his mission of testifying about Jesus all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. So what we see in Paul's life is God's protection. And what we mentioned last week was startling to some, but I mentioned if you're following God's will, nobody can take you out until God is finished with you. We see that in Paul's life. We saw that in Jesus' life whenever Jesus was in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. But it says, miraculously, Jesus walked down the crowd. Nobody could touch him until it was his time. So here's the question. Paul knew his mission. Do you know your mission? Do you know what God's calling you to do? How do, how do we make sense of that? Well, I think about the car mechanic that wants to help single moms. Maybe the car mechanics like, you know, I know single moms. I don't want them to get um, hoodooed at a, at a shop. I don't want them to pay expense, expensive car repair bills. So the car mechanic does that in order to try to share Christ with people. What about the landscaper? The landscaper that realizes there's people in the community that maybe they're disabled, maybe they're going through some things, 
And maybe he or she volunteers their time to help the community. And uh, we have a small group. I want to give a little shout out to David Whitson's small group. He didn't know I was going to give him a shout out. Got a lot of members. But I went to go visit a member of our church this week. And they said, David Whitson's small group came and did my yard work because I wasn't able to do it this year. I was going through some health issues. So let's give them a hand. It's what do I do using my time, gifts, talents, and abilities to move the mission forward? Paul, it was him being a faithful witness. For you, it's what has God given you? What can you use to move the mission forward? So whenever you live for this audience of one, you don't have to fear anyone. Amen? So one of my dreams, and I just ask this as a prayer, I've had it for over a decade, many of you have heard me share this, but one of my dreams is like, how could we impact this community in a way that make a difference? It's been to eventually do a Christian coffee shop or a cafe, kind of like a cafe with the calls. And with COVID, we've not been able to explore this vision anymore, but continue to pray. Because as I drive and as I meet people, I've, you, know, you drive by Dunkin' Donuts, the line's out the door into the road. I mean, maybe you've seen that. Uh, you go to different restaurants and you see people communicating. And I'm like, what would it look like if we had church more than Sunday? What if we, we had a place where we could connect with people in order to share Christ with them? So I, wanna, I want you guys to pray that God would give us the wisdom and creativity one day if it's in his plan to have this third place where people can connect, where we can tell people about the love of Christ. So what is your dream? I want you guys to think about that. I want you guys to dream because the Bible says earlier in Acts, in the last days, young men will see visions and old men will do what? Dream dreams. Isn't dreaming dreams usually the sport of young men and women? So how can old men dream dreams? It's when you're living for something beyond your lifetime. It's when you're creating legacy. It's when you're doing things that after I get promoted to glory, what I establish is going to continue on reaching people for Christ. I want you to live not just for longevity, but I want you to live for legacy. How can you impact lives with the gospel? Amen. All right, observation number four. And we're going to start to get in the courtroom. This is going to be fun. So for those of you who are like, I'm not legal, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know where we're going, hang in there. We're going to get you into the courtroom. The Jewish religious leaders continued their disinformation campaign against Paul as they sought to silence the Christian movement. So in verses 1 through 9, we enter into the courtroom. So to help you guys feel a little bit of the drama, I want you guys to enter into the courtroom. We're going to play a one-minute clip from a famous court trial. If you're younger than 30, you may not remember this, but the rest of you will. Let's play this clip. Lionel Cryer in FX's The People vs. O.J. Simpson. He's depicted as giving O.J. a raised fist salute as he left the courtroom after the verdict. That moment really did happen, but a lot's changed since then. My personal feeling is that Mr. Simpson probably did commit these crimes. The thing about it is, is he, to me, he was a very clever criminal. Cryer says he voted to acquit because prosecutors bungled the case. His feelings changed when O.J. wrote this controversial book, If I Did It. 
Well, the book actually was the turning point for me to, to go to the feeling that he probably did kill those people. Because I thought that that was such a Bush League thing for him to do at that time. And then I'm thinking, what would your kids think about you doing something like that? In 2008, Simpson was convicted in Nevada of armed robbery. I didn't want to steal anything from anybody. I don't think anybody there said I wanted anybody else's stuff. Just my own. So, how many of you think O.J. did it? <laughs> Majority. So I want to kind of contrast this with Paul. How many of you think Paul did it? Right, he's innocent. So it's a different trial. It's a different setup. OJ was on trial for taking life. Paul was on trial for giving life, right? OJ, when they delivered the verdict, do you think he was a little worried? Like, what if I get convicted? What's going to happen to me? Do you think Paul was worried at all? He already knew the outcome, right? You're going to make it to Rome. So he knew no matter what happened in Caesarea... So I wanted you guys to enter the courtroom. And into the courtroom, we see Ananias the high priest. And you're like, what's so significant about this? Well, Ananias the high priest had to travel some 65 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And that was very rare for a high priest, especially a a senior adult high priest, to come in there and give you know, a a verdict, a trial. So his goal was he was hell-bent on destroying Paul. Because Ananias... And many members of the Sanhedrin believed if they could silence Paul, they could silence what? Christianity. But did it work? It did not work. So basically, they accused Paul of three things, if you're taking notes. This rhetoric, this guy, Tertullus, comes forward. In the Greek, it's basically a public speaker, an orator. So he was the silver tongue orator. He's the guy that could just talk so well he left the audience spellbound. So he presented three charges against Paul. Charge number one, Paul is causing problems all around the world. True or false? Well, you could kind of say kind of true, right? Because everywhere Paul goes, there's riots. But did Paul cause that, right? Paul was not an agitator trying to stir people up. That was not his goal. And when he said all around the world, he's probably talking about the Roman world, not everywhere on planet Earth. Second charge, Paul is a cult leader. And what Tertullus is trying to do, he's trying to say he's different from the sect, he's different from the religion of Judaism because Judaism was protected by the Roman government. So if Tertullus could prove that Paul had nothing to do with Judaism, guess what? This Christian sect or Christian cult, as he called it, wasn't protected by Roman law so that he was trying to make that case. The third charge is Paul desecrated the temple. True or false? It was definitely false. So what we can make of this is when Paul addressed this, when, when he was being on trial, there were many charges against him that were false. And Jesus told us, I think I have it in your listening guide, if you'll throw it up on the screen. He says in John 15, I think we have that. These command, these things I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So in this courtroom decision, we see people hating on Paul. We see people making a caricature of him. So I just want to encourage all of you as Christians. You know, we just had the Roe v. Wade decision handed down in court. And uh, as Christians, we're rejoicing that there's a step towards life. But have you noticed a lot of hate towards Christians? Have you noticed the comments? So there's a lot of lie about us Christians. We want all of life from the womb to the tomb. A lot of caricatures like you guys don't care about a woman's health. Listen, we care about all of life and we respect all of life. 
And as a church, we have to rally. If someone has a baby and they can't take care of the baby, guess what? There's adoption. There's, there's a lot of Christian movements. And if you look at organizations throughout history, guess where all the orphanages came from, many of them? Christian organizations. Guess who takes in the childless? Mostly Christian organizations through history, right? So here's the thing. Don't let the world squeeze you into a caricature mode. We're, we're for all of life, from the womb to the tomb, amen? So we celebrate the step towards life, but that's not the end goal. We continue to promote life. Jesus said Satan comes to destroy and to kill life. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So from the womb to the tomb, we are pro-life, and we're going to protect Children, we're going to lift up women, we're going to lift up senior adults. All of life is precious to God. Can I get amen? So Paul understood the world's going to try to make a caricature of you. They're going to try to lie. They're going to try to make things about you. But here's his response really briefly. And some of you are like, how are you going to get through a chapter? We're going to get through a chapter. Hang in there. Uh, Paul's response was three things. Number one, he was respectful even when he was being disrespected. Look at verse 10 in chapter 24. It says, then, after, then Paul, after the governor, nodded for him to speak. He said, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do cheerfully answer for myself. So here's the thing. Paul didn't try to butter up Felix. He didn't try to lie or say, you're a great ruler, because Felix was not. Okay, Felix was ruthless. In fact, uh, MacArthur brought up this point is really cool. I didn't know this from history, but two years after this trial, Felix got removed by Nero because he was such a bad ruler. Okay, so Felix, he's only going to be there two more years. Nero removes him just because he's such a bad ruler. So here's the thing. Always remember to be respectful, even when others disrespect you. So it brings the question, what if someone's hard to honor, you know, like, how many of you don't raise your hand, but how many of you have bosses or people that you work with that it's just hard to honor? They're an authority above you, but it's hard to honor them, right? Anybody there? Don't raise your hand, but you're there. Okay, how many of you have people in your family that maybe you're called to honor them, but maybe it's really hard to honor them? So I want to give you a principle that is drawn from Scripture that you honor the position even if you don't honor the person in the position, I'll say that again. You honor the position even if you don't honor the person in the position. So we have a scripture from Romans. Let's throw this up here. What about the government? What if it's not my political party? Listen, as a church, we don't preach politics. We preach Christ and we preach biblical values. But whoever is elected, Democrat, Republican, Independent, other, it says everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in position of authority have been placed there by God. You're like, wow. So what should we do for elected officials? We should pray for them, whether they're your political party or not. We should pray for leaders and the president and those in authority. And Paul goes on. This is ouch. He said, pay your taxes, too. For these same reason, government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. And you're like, well, how can that be? Well, God is the God of order. And the reason why we have government is to establish order. And you're like, well, what if they're doing a horrible job at it? Will you pray for them to establish order. That's their job. So here's the thing. You can respect the position even if you don't respect the person in position. All right. How did Paul respond? Number two, Paul was truthful even when others were lying about him. So how did Paul respond to the lies? Did he power up? Did he get angry? Did he throw a tantrum? No, he just responded to the truth in love. So here's the thing. 
There's nothing wrong with posting on your social media your views. I'm for that. But let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever changed someone's mind by your post on social media? I don't know if I ever have. I mean, I post a lot of scripture, a lot of stuff. But when it comes to debates, let me just give you this thing. I think the easy way out is just throwing a post up. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that's easy. What's hard is having the conversation face to face. So instead of debating people on social media, why don't you have a conversation with them over coffee? All right. And we're like, that's that's too hard. Well, that, that's how that's how people's hearts are changed when you get face to face. So it's easy. People not only see your actions, but they see your reactions. So if we react just as crazy as they do, what does that say about Christians? Christians are crazy. We need to respond to the truth in love. So according to Romans 12, Paul also wrote this passage to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a lot of advice. There's three options. When someone comes against you and lies, maybe they, they trash on you in social media. Some of you have had that or people go off. Three responses. Number one is payback. Return evil with evil. As some people will say, that's going Old Testament on somebody, right? <laughs> but we're called to a higher level. We're called to turn the cheek. We're not called to repay evil with evil. Option two is run and hide. Be overcome by evil. Did you see Jesus running and hiding? Did you see Paul running and hiding or did you see them standing up for the truth? They didn't run and hide. So option two is just, you know, the fight or flight. I'm just going to run away. I'm going to hide in my corner. I'm going to say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. But that doesn't change anyone's life either. But option three, Paul gives us the best option is return evil with what? Good. That's how that's how you stand up. So when others are shooting arrows of falsehood and doubt, be truthful. When others are running your name through the mud, be truthful. When others are tearing you down, you continue to build others up. How do you overcome evil? You'll overcome evil by doing and speaking good. Amen. All right. Number three, third reaction of Paul. Paul stayed true to his faith, even when it seemed like Everything and everyone was against them. So in verses 14 through 16 and verse 21, we have some great theological truths. I highlight this while reading the text. Paul said, the law and the prophets, I believe all of it. And did you know Jesus believed all of the Old Testament as well? So the problem we have with some Christians today, I'm still in this from Skip Heisek. I thought it was really good. We have Dalmatian theology. Anybody ever had a Dalmatian before? You know, really pretty white with the spots. And uh, Isaac brought up the point, I thought it was really brilliantly said, is that when it comes to the Bible, people like, I love the Bible in spots. I like this psalm, it's so beautiful, so poetic. David, pouring out his heart to God. But Romans 1, man, I'm skipping that. Man, I love it like this, but love my enemy, turn the other cheek. I'm going to turn the other page when you talk to turn the other cheek. We cannot like the Bible in spots. We got to be under the authority of God's word. Because when you're under the authority of God's word, you're under his covering, his protection, his power. Here's the thing. I believe in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I even believe in the maps. You can laugh at that one. It's like I believe in all of the word because we can't make up the word. We can only receive it. We can't invent truth. We can only discover it. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. But my words remain forever. So as some people decide to compromise in churches... We choose to stand on the truth. As some people try to become politically correct because they don't want to offend anyone, we decide that we're living for an audience of one. And because we live for an audience of one, we don't have to fear anyone. And the church said, 
Amen. So Paul stayed true. He proclaimed that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. He said, I have a clear conscience. So it brings us to us. It brings us to us. Now we're on application. We covered the whole chapter. Can you believe it, Starsky? No one believed it. We did it. All right. So how should we respond? We talked about what happened to Paul, how he responded. So what about you and what about me? In 2022 and beyond, if you're watching this in 2040, how should you respond? Number one, speak the truth in love no matter what anyone else does. So here's the reality. You are only responsible for your own actions and reactions. Did you know you're not responsible for someone else's emotional reaction? Isn't that good? It's so freeing. And this, this will help you in your marriage. That as long as you're, you're being nice and kind and saying it with your spouse, you can't control their reactions. How many of you know that's true? Whew, that's freeing. So if I'm not responsible for your emotions, I don't have to react when you react. How many of you couples have ever gotten a fight because he reacted, so you reacted? You reacted to his reaction and it became a fight. Anybody? I'll raise my hand. But if you realize this, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it, and it's when you say it, and it's not just your tone, but it's also your timing. How many of you have said the right thing in the right way, but at the wrong time? And you're like, man, I spoke the truth, but I did it the wrong timing, right? So know when to say it, know how to say it. Number two, second application if you're in a conflict, you've got to ask this question, what part did I play in the conflict? When you're in any relationship, when you first get going, if you're like some, you think that you're right most of the time. How many of you believe that? Most people believe that, right? But how many of you realize that as you get older, you realize I'm only right part of the time? And in most conflict, it's a formula like, like, if you're only partially wrong, it may be they're 70% right, you're 30% wrong by how you responded. It's a formula. So, like, in any conflict, ask, what part did I play? And take ownership for your part. All right, action step number three. Never waste any trial. Every trial is a trail that leads to a treasure. Every trial is a trail that leads to a treasure, but you have to not get off the trail before the end of the trial. So what trial are you going through? Every trial is a teacher. The Bible says that God is using trials, it says in the book of James, to develop your patience, your perseverance. But you've got to let it have its perfect work. God wants you to mature, complete, lacking nothing. In Psalm 119, verse 71, let's see if we have this on the, the scripture the psalmist says, it was good for me to be afflicted. What? <laughs> it was good for me to be afflicted? Are you kidding me? And here's the reason why. So I might learn your decrees. All sunshine leads to desert. And the same is true in your spiritual life. But when you're going through trials, Paul was in a literal trial. We're talking about figurative trials. Trials of ref- refinement. Trials of testing. Things that come in your way. So how do you respond? These are three applications. So to summarize this into one truth, let's throw the big idea on the screen. Let's summarize this chapter in the Bible. When you live for an audience of one, you don't have to fear anyone. But what if they don't like me? Hey, 25% aren't going to like you no matter what. Sorry to deflate your ego. Well, what about if I'm living for the well done, good and faithful servant applause? I don't have to get applause from the crowd anymore. And you know what? 
That's amazing when you live that way. Paul lived that way, and he's calling us to live that way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we're able to go into the courtroom today. And with the exception of people in the legal background, some of us, it took us a little while to get into the courtroom. It took us a while to fill the trial. But God, I want to pray for believers first that you would help us. I realize that many of us struggle living for the approval of others. It's called the, the fear of man. Many of us wrestle with the fear of man. I'm, I'm the first to confess that. And if that's you, let your seat be your sanctuary. Just tell God, God, I, I care too much about what people think. I'm so concerned what people think and the reactions that I live in the fear of man. Just tell them that. It, the Bible says it's a sin to say, God, forgive me. He already knows. And say, God, from now on, I want to live the approval of you and you alone. And that way I don't have to fear anyone or anything else. As the believers continue to pray and do business, there may be someone here today that you're a seeker and you came here today, you're watching online, and the reality is you want to live, but you've really something's missing in your life. And I just want to let you know that missing part in your life is a cross-shaped void. Right now you're only living two-thirds alive. You're alive physically, but you're dying. You're alive personality-wise, but you're spiritually dead. God doesn't want you to live two-thirds alive anymore. He wants you to be a human being fully alive for the glory of God. So if you've never invited Jesus to save you, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you, right where you're at, in person, online, I want you to say this prayer. It's you reaching out to God. Say, God, I need you. Just tell him, I need you. I need you to save me. God, I do believe the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. I believe that. But God, I've never received it. I've never asked for forgiveness. So today, at this moment in time, I ask that you would forgive me of all my sins. Step out of heaven and step into my life. I choose to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Father, thank you so much that when we live for an audience of one, we don't have to fear anyone. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, Amen.